0: I see my life come shining From the west down to the east Any day now, any day now I shall be released
1: Hello, I'm Alex Hannaford and this
2: is The Innocents. Hello, I'm producer Pete and today... We are talking to... Daniel Villegas.
3: Daniel Villegas is accused of killing two men in a drive-by shooting.
2: Okay, tell me about Daniel's alleged
1: crime. So the crime that Daniel was convicted of took place just before midnight on April the 10th. 1993
0: Robert England and 17 year old Armando Lazo were doing what a lot of teens do on a Friday night these
1: boys had just left a party four young men were walking home from a party in northeast El Paso Texas which is where Daniel lived
3: when they were approached by a car believed to be driven by a gang
1: when this car pulled up beside them and somebody began shooting two of those men died that night
3: two died from the hail of gunfire
1: several local men were picked up and questioned by police about the crime long gruelling interviews during which detectives threatened them threatened that they would be raped in prison if they didn't confess and daniel was one of those men
2: tell me a bit about daniel
1: he was from a poor background he's hispanic he'll explain he was used to police pulling over uh, him and his friends all the time so when he was picked up for a murder a double murder Obviously, he was terrified. And what's interesting about this story is that Daniel eventually confessed to a crime he
2: had nothing to do with.
0: Only 16 years old when he confessed to killing two teenagers.
2: And not only that, he had an alibi for the time of the shootings, right? He did. It's
1: pretty messy. One of the things that he had done was jokingly told his cousin that he had killed these men with a shotgun
0: made the worst mistake of his life when joking with his cousin he took responsibility for the crime
1: not only was he not responsible the boys hadn't been shot with a shotgun anyway but a handgun this fact was conveniently left out uh, at the trial by the prosecution so uh, you know he was innocent and although he recanted his confession just a few hours after signing it it was by that point it was too late
2: and it took a couple of trials to convict him, didn't it? Um, the first one ended in a hung jury. What happened in the second trial?
1: Yeah, his second trial in 1995, Daniel was convicted uh, and sentenced to life in prison. As I say, it's sort of there's lots of twists and turns. In January 2014, he was actually released on bail after the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals ruled that he was entitled to a new trial because of ineffective counsel. But of course, like a lot of these um, episodes that we've brought you, just because you're released and you are physically free does not mean that you are actually free. So, you know, Daniel's fate at this point was still up in the air and it was in the hands of a criminal justice system that had wrongfully convicted him in the first place. So how long was he in prison in total? In total, he was in prison for 18 years, and his third trial, there were three, began on October the 1st, 2018, and you're going to hear all about it.
2: We seem to say this a lot in this series, but he was very young, wasn't he? He was 16 when he was first arrested, and he was 17 when he went to prison. It's just extraordinary.
1: Yeah, um, and we talk about uh, talk about that because you'd think that if you are sixteen, seventeen, there are certain things. If you get picked up for a, a crime, well, any crime, that would be in place. Like you would have an, an attorney, you would you would think, and you would have uh, a parent or guardian with you. What do you think was the case with Daniel, Pete? I think he was probably interviewed alone. You're right. It's worth pointing out that there's um, the reason I heard about Daniel's case was from Proclaimed Justice, from John Hardin at Proclaimed Justice. But also um, there's a very what has become a kind of viral video clip of Daniel when he is found innocent. And it, you can look it up on YouTube, but we'll talk about that in the show.
2: It's actually in the interview you're about to hear, just a short clip of it. But just just to watch it as well, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. And um, it's quite hard not to get emotional when you watch it.
1: A brief word from one of our sponsors. If, like me, the election was such a nail-biter, it affected your sleep, and America's politics continues to do so, Helix Sleep may have just the solution. I got my mattress about a month ago. You may remember from our previous podcast series that my dog Scruff beat me to the punch when it came to trying it out, but since then I've kicked him off and have been having fantastic night's sleep every night. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete, matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. I took the quiz. I was matched with a medium mattress suitable for side sleepers. So it's soft but still really supportive and I'm falling asleep right away. So if you're looking for a mattress, take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to and the mattress comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't even need to go into the mattress store ever again. So for my listeners, you can go to helixsleep.com slash masses, as in huddled masses, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They've got a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free, and they'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com. Slash masses. So I'm, I'm kind of interested, the day you were picked up by the police, did you even know that there had been a murder? Was this something that the whole street knew? Yeah,
4: like we knew there was, was a murder, but like, uh, you know, back in them days, there was a lot of murders at that time. And I mean, the police were always either after somebody for either killing somebody or, or the police were always after somebody for, for attempting to kill somebody. You know, you mm. always had them gun wound shots that never got in the news because there were so many of those that just people got shot, you know. Of course. That time frame, I mean, cops coming and picking you up and all that stuff is, is something that was, you know, was a daily daily thing, you know.
1: Tell me about the moment you realized that this was actually, not only was it not about a robbery, which you had you know, nothing to do with, but it was something far more serious. We were at the house
4: chilling and I was talking on the phone and I know clearly because the news was just coming out, right? Hmm. And my mom was just showing up. It was like these cops were waiting for my mom for some reason. I don't know why. But as soon as my mom drove up in the driveway, man, these cops came up from everywhere. And when they kicked down my door, they didn't even come toward me. I was like closer to the door than my friend Marco's, right? Marco was being the guy who got arrested with me and also a guy who lived at my house. Like I said, he was one of the kids that lived in the street. Mm. But, so when they come in the house, they don't even come asking for my name. They come asking for Marco. They say, hey, we uh, Marco's Gonzalez, we got a, a warrant for your arrest for capital murder. So they drop him to the floor, handcuff him, and as they're all walking out of the house, I stopped the last detective and I tell him, hey, man, if you don't have a, a, an arrest warrant, let me see where that at. You got to unhandcuff him, you know? I should have kept my mouth shut. But uh, that detective ended up turning around. He was like, well, what's your name? And then I said, my name's Daniel Viegas. And then when I, as soon as I said that, these dudes just tackled me and handcuffed me. They're like, oh, shit, we want you too, you know?
1: When they took you to the station, Daniel, did you have a, a family member accompany you? You were a minor. No, no, they didn't have no family member accompany me. They threw us in, a,
4: in the back of that cop car and started talking about we killed these kids and took off. They didn't even tell my
1: mom where we were going. They just pushed her out the way. I know you're young at this point, but I mean, presumably, knowing that you had nothing to do with this, you thought that this would be cleared up in a matter of hours and you'd be back at home? You know, on that, you know, like
4: I said, I never thought that they were, um, after they forced that confession and I told that the probation officer that it was false, that I got coerced for that, um, then I started thinking, well, you know, they're not... It, the system's not going to... You know, we're going to have to go through some some courts and stuff. But I figured that the system was going to clear it up. You
1: know what I mean? I believed in America. You thought it would take time. Yeah. That they would realize that you had nothing to do with it. What was your reaction, Daniel, when you learned that your cousin, David Ranjel, had told the police that you had committed the murders? Do you remember that moment? Yeah. Uh, you know, I was mad, but I was
4: not so much... Um, how do I put it? It's because that, that's kind of hard to explain. Because I mean, um, it was a lot of emotions going in that. But one of the main things, I was pissed. But at the same time, man, I know what I just went through. You know, mm. so I, I I know what he went through. You know, so it's like, how can I be mad at you when I did the same goddamn thing?
1: You know what I mean? Well, you hadn't you hadn't done the same thing. You hadn't implicated. Another family member for a crime they didn't commit. I mean, he's he he's saving his own skin, trying to, right? Not not really. He was forced. He was forced. Gotcha. Okay. It wasn't like if he knew about the he knew about the murder because he didn't know
4: about the murders, You know, right? They forced that confession out of him. David didn't go to the police station and said, "Hey, I know this guy. Uh, my cousin told me he murdered a guy." You know what I mean? Right. What they did with David was they called his mother because he was a and now. He was seventeen. Mm. They had called his mother. And told his mother, hey, we want your son for a phone harassment. And then my, my my aunt was like, what are you talking? My aunt's like very protective of this kid, right? That's her baby. So she freaks out. You know, this is an ABA on the road student kid, you know? <laughs> mm. So she doesn't want to know what the hell is going on with this phone harassment. So she calls David and she tells David, hey, you need to go to the police station and clean up that mess. With that phone harassment. So they're not under the perception that they're going over there for a capital murder. So when he gets there to the police station, says that he's David Ranhel, and then says he's there for that phone harassment, but the detectives get him. Oh, we need to talk to you. They act like 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 if he just, you know what I mean? Like they were just passing by,
1: you know? So he was coerced in the same and I wanna come on to 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 that because that's a very, very pivotal part of your case how the detectives coerced you into making a confession at this point though you had an alibi and police spoke to people who were there with you on the night of the murders and you must have thought at this point okay you know i have an alibi these people have stuck up for me i'm going to be getting out but instead there was this lengthy interrogation And I want to know, you know, we hear about this stuff. I think people listening to the podcast will know. They've heard this before. They've seen it on TV. We hear about the tactics that some detectives use to coerce a confession. Long interrogations that leave you very tired. Sleep deprivation. But people still might be astonished to hear how somebody, why somebody would confess to a murder they had nothing to do with. But it happens. We know it happens. Can you tell us? how that happened? Well, it happens because this is what exactly
4: what the cops do. They put you in a state of mind where you are mentally paralyzed. I mean, they freak you out. They put you like if they are above the law, they have you in that room and they got their badges out and all that. They're hitting you. You feel like, you know, these are cops. It's my word against theirs. These guys can kill me, put me in the trunk and go drop me off somewhere. And hey, no one's going to think twice about it. They can just go arrest some other gang member and say, hey, you know what, man, this guy did the killing and it was a cop that did it. You know what I mean? So they put you in that frame of mind that they will go beyond. And so you're going to what you're going to do. You're so scared. You're so panicked. You're going to give them whatever the hell they want to hear so you can get the hell up out that room. Because you're not thinking about the future at this moment. You're just thinking about, I got to get the hell up out this room. You know, just think about an animal coming to attack you. And you're not thinking about, hey, man, you know, what the stock market is going to be in a year. You know, you're
1: thinking, how the <laughs> hell am I going to get away from this goddamn animal? Because it's trying to kill me, you know? Exactly. And, and the moment that detective left the room, you actually told another officer. This was, wasn't something that a week later you decided to tell them that it was a false confession. The moment he left the room, you told another officer, that you'd been forced into this confession. What did they do with that information? They didn't do nothing. They didn't even act like they believed me. I didn't even
4: know about that that they had even made that report. You know, when I told that lady, I didn't even think she had even made a report. I mean they didn't they it was like if it just went in one ear and not the other.
0: Daniel Villegas was charged with the murder in the shooting death of two teenagers in northeast El Paso, Robert England and Armando Lazo. Daniel claims he wasn't even at the scene. The school dropout, an admitted small-time delinquent, says he didn't know the victims either. With no murder weapon found or physical evidence linking him to the crime, Daniel Villegas's conviction hung on a confession he says was coerced by detectives.
1: You were 16 years old, Daniel, and you'd just been charged with capital murder. Did you still think that justice is gonna prevail. Did you still sort of believe that you would be okay?
4: Yo, yeah, I mean, at that time, you know, I totally believed in the system. You know, I totally believed, you know, I thought that, you know, we had some crooked cows, but I was, you know, my, I wanted, my future was, so I was supposed to be a Marine, you know, Uh, and I wanted to go into special forces. You know, I I believed in my country and, 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 uh, you know, we have a lot of Marines in our family. So, you know, we have always had that traditional, you know, pride in the flag and everything. So I literally thought, you know, that, you know, justice will prevail. You know, I, I was I was under that impression that you know it would, our America is a flawless system,
1: and in at the end of the day, you know, saying justice will prevail. <laughs> and actually, ju- during the trial, that first trial, your friends and cousin recanted their statements. The detective who forced that confession his integrity had been questioned during the trial.
0: Daniel Villegas' confession weighed heavily during the trial. The defense presented 18 witnesses, including a woman who testified the teen was actually babysitting her daughter the night of the murder. Attorneys who said that the main detective had a history of lying under oath and coercing witnesses, other testimony that the murder weapon was a small caliber gun, not a shotgun, as Daniel confessed, and that he was easily manipulated, gullible, and mentally slow, according to a psychiatrist
1: but that trial ended in a hung jury and that means they couldn't reach a verdict so there had to be a retrial did you think that when the judge ordered a retrial that that you had hope that the next time you'd be fully acquitted now
4: at that time i my lawyer had told me that uh it was a mistrial and uh he said don't worry about it i'll get the case dropped in three months and then instead of getting it dropped in three months, they recharged me with it. And then uh, he told us, well, you know what? I, I got to charge you another 20000 And then we had, we were still paying off that first 20000 So we were like, oh, we can't do it. So
1: mm, they gave me a court-appointed lawyer. So you hired an attorney initially, but then it was just too expensive. So you had to have a court-appointed lawyer. On the second one, exactly.
4: So we got that dude. And once I seen him, I, I I've I knew we were screwed. I was pretty much like, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is going to happen gonna work out what was it about him that made you think you were screwed I, he was just not he didn't have nothing i mean he didn't have no you have to have like I, I like my other lawyer he had he was charismatic he was he knew the law he wanted he was hustling he was he was hungry he was eager you know he had that eye of a tiger you know what i mean and this guy is one of them he looked like one of them dudes that worked at the at the at the irs all his life and was ready to retire you know and he only called one witness. Yeah. And then, the the but that's not even the bad part, man. The bad part is the last statement he made in closing arguments when he said, and even if my client did this, he did not mean to kill him. I mean, why the hell would you say some stupid shit like that? Mm. You basically just told the jury I'm guilty. <laughs> but that stupid comment he just made, You know, that was the worst of the worst that he ever did. And I, I, I mean, I think that dude is just, I can't believe that he's still a lawyer right now. It He's still practicing. Me. And you, yeah. you,
1: you're you still, don't forget, I mean, uh, uh, the, the people listening to this, you are still very, very young at this point, 17 years old, I think.
3: A second trial convicted Viegas of capital murder with an automatic life sentence.
1: Do you remember the guilty verdict being read out? Oh, yeah. Yep, I sure do.
4: Yeah, and uh, my mom started screaming and uh, I, I having to take her out. And then uh, I was like in shock. I, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, I mean, I, I knew I was screwed, but, you know, it, it still hadn't registered of, of, um, you know, the guilty verdict until we had to recess for a little bit because of that commotion. And then they sentenced me like right afterwards. So I was like a little 10 minute break. And then when they gave me the sentence of uh, capital life. That's when you see me put my, and I got that famous picture where I'm like touching my head. And that's when that reality hit that I was, I was convicted. And, and, and at that moment, the thoughts that hit my head were, this is going to be life now. So I got to change everything about me.
0: This is the way it turned out for Daniel Villegas in a state prison in Abilene, Texas, where the oh. days are long and monotonous.
1: Daniel, tell us about those first few days you, you were taken to prison. I want to kind of get a sense of, of what that was like the, those first few days and how the corrections officers treated you, how other inmates treated you. Back in them days, you know, I'm not, I'm a, I'm not a proud,
4: <laughs> I should say, of the stupid shit I was thinking in, uh, um, back then. But, you know, back then I had no hope. You know, when, that, when, when she gave me that life sentence, I was dead inside. There was nothing in me no more. So, you know, the first days mm. I was thinking, this is my life. I'm gonna die in prison. So I'm gonna be the best freaking convict there is. You know what I mean? I'm gonna Mm -hmm. learn this game up and down because this is my life now. I can't turn back. And and I was in literally I was dead. I was emotionless. I mean, so like that was my first days was just watching everybody, figuring out what's what, who's who. When I first went to prison, (laughs) we're going into the cell and and the guard stops us and he tells us, hey, when I open these doors, he says, every one of you motherfuckers are going to get your ass kicked. He said, half y'all going to get raped and one or two are going to come out dead in the morning. Whatever happens tonight, do not come crying to me or my officers because we ain't your mamas. We ain't your papas. You shouldn't have done what you did to come to prison. Welcome to the burning hell. Come in with your gloves on, ready to fight. And he wasn't lying. He opened up that damn door. We walked up in there and, man, they lit our asses up. Three guys were, were jumping on me. And then uh, after they were done, you know, this other guy comes up to me with was like, hey, little homie, it'll be all right, man. You ain't got to do all this fighting, man. You just got to bust or fuck, you know. And I'm like, fuck that, bro. I got a live sentence. You got me messed up. And then three new guys got on my ass, you know what I mean? Every time I was, it was all over, you know, I'm all busted up. I can't even see. And then they gave me a list. And they tell me, here, if your celly does any of the things on this list, man, you got to beat him up. And then when I go to my cell, it's a big old black guy. And I'm all busted up and I'm so I'm like, shit, there's no freaking way I can freaking fight this dude, right? So shit, I'm like, the hell with that. So I tell this dude, man, you know what? This dude's big, man. What the hell can I use? So he tells me to use the hot pot on his ass when he goes to sleep. So I used the hot pot on him. And that was my inauguration into my first day in prison. <laughs> that
1: was day one.
4: <laughs> day one. <laughs> oh
1: my That's God. What I now said, the-
4: when, when that officer is sick y'all gonna get raped half y'all gonna get he wasn't bullshitting (laughs) he wasn't bullshitting
1: well the other thing i think it's it's important to kind of add here that people i mean probably have an idea that prison (laughs) prison is a pretty violent place but the guards themselves there was this this idea of like gladiators right tell us about that this is guards pitting certain inmates against one another (laughs) Yeah, their guards, they've been there for a while. So they got a keen eye for
4: who's going to be a good fighter. So what they would do was um, the field guards are the officers who take the inmates out to the fields and work them. You, it's the guy that you always see on the horses with the cowboy hats. You know what I mean? So that's a special type of officer. They're kind of like an elite type group, right? So these guys, you know, while they're out, we're out in the fields what they would do is they'll have a little gambling ring and they'll have inmates fighting each other, you know, and they, every guard had their fighters their champions and stuff like that. And they'll even have trainers to train those guys, you know? So one of the officers had noticed me, he thought that, uh, he thought, well, hell I can get this guy trained. So he told me, he was like, look, man, you got a life sentence. Your life can be a living hell. I'll make it a living hell or you can come and fight for me and you'll live a lot better. So uh, I said, "Yeah, I'll go ahead, see what the hell." So he got me two trainers. Uh, it was like six months of just working out, showing me how to do no punching and stuff. Till they got my body real rock hard, man. I would like throw up, and then they'll be like, "Well, wash your mouth, come back out, keep on doing the pushups, burpees." And then my body was like nothing but nerve endings. And once it became that hard, then they started showing me how to, you know, how to do uh tactical fighting techniques and stuff. And then they would get these big old black guys to come and whip my ass because it was, you know. One of the things about fighting is you got to get rid of that fear of getting hit. You know what I mean? Mm. So they would always put these dudes on, you to know, whip you real quick, man. So to
1: get you away from that fear of, of getting punched. And I did that for years. Years. Mm-hmm. You were in prison for 18 years. Was there any point when it wasn't violent? Did it get less violent or was it violent all the way through? I actually did 19 years.
4: <laughs> 19. But at the end of that, there was this thing. uh, this kid had got raped in there. It was, uh, I don't know if, I can't remember if it was the governor's uh, at the time, Rick Perry, but whoever this kid was, his parents were very close to the governor. So when he had got raped and killed in prison, Rick Perry made all these laws. This was called the Safe Prison Act. And uh, once those laws came into effect, it, it did a lot of changes in prison. It made it a lot safer. So when that started happening and, and people started actually getting you know, more time for that, then it cut a lot of violence out of prison. So the end of the years was a lot less violent than the beginning. The beginning was really bad, and the end of the years was almost kind of had it like an old folks home, you know.
1: Huddled masses, the Innocence wouldn't be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe, whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, a medical emergency. Simply Safe Home Security delivers. Award-winning 24-7 protection. And with Simply Safe, you don't just get an arsenal of cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police, fire or EMTs when you need them most. Straight to your door. I got their high-quality equipment delivered straight to my door. It's really easy to set up. Even I can do it. There's a camera that shoots clear, high-def footage and sensors to install that protect every inch of your home. It takes about 30 minutes to set up. It's really easy. And then simply safe professionals take over, monitoring your home 24-7, and they're ready to send help the moment there's an alarm plus with simply safe there is no long-term contract no hidden fees or installation costs and right now my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a simply safe system at simplysafe.com slash masses as in huddled masses you also get a 60-day risk-free trial so there's nothing to lose visit simplysafe.com slash masses for your free security camera today
0: Local contractor John Mimbella heard about Daniel's case through mutual relatives. In the past two years, he spent $80,000 of his own money to find proof that Daniel did not commit double murder.
1: Tell us about John Mimbella. He was this family friend who became a sort of crusader for your freedom. Yeah,
4: John's a great guy. I mean, that guy is, um, he's, he's something else. Uh, when he came into the picture, I mean, that's the guy who brought life back into me. But, like, I remember how I told you that I was dead. And... Uh, He's the one that his enthusiasm and his 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 passion his he was just one of them guys that was not going to take no for an answer you know <laughs> You're going to agree mm. with it so uh... I mean, me and him would argue, we would bump heads all the time, man, because I was just so negative, you know? Mm. And he was trying to show me the right way. John has been there for me for forever, man. The highest court in Texas would
3: later rule that confession was coerced. The Texas Court of Appeals ordered a mistrial. Villegas was released on bond awaiting a third retrial.
1: You were released on bond awaiting this appeal in 2014. Tell us, about those first few days of freedom.
4: Oh man, those were like paradise. Everything was just going so fast, you know? I was seeing these uh, iPads and, and I was trying to figure them out how to get onto the internet. I had a Mac computer that they had gave me. I didn't have no idea about the internet at all. And you gotta remember one thing too that a lot of people don't recognize is that when you ask exoneries man, we always call it the honeymoon stage. You know, when you first come out, everything's exciting. You forgive the world, you know what I mean? <laughs> Someone can come slap you in the face. You ain't going to do shit. You know what I mean? You're just happy, happy, happy. You know what I mean? Mm.
1: Because
4: you're free. But then after, you know, that works out and, you know, real life starts coming into effect and and you start realizing, man, little by little how much you lost, Mm. then it starts killing you and it starts eating you. And then you realize how far back you are compared to everybody else. And that eats you up. And then you start seeing like... You know, like I would see my sister, my little brother, and they got these big houses, swimming pools, I'm in a damn ranch. And, 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 you know, and I'm over here making $10 an hour. (laughs) You you know what I mean? And I ain't got shit. I'm borrowing my mom's car. And I'm in my 40s, you know? Then you start resenting it because you start thinking, man, these dudes took a lot from me, man. But for sure, that's part of the process also. I mean, that's when you need a John Mimbella. You need my dad. You need you need some people like that in your life, like my, my sister. You need people in your corner. Exactly. That's going to bring it back.
1: One of those people, um, I know Jason Baldwin came on the stage at this point. Now, this is interesting because you had an option here. You were offered the chance not to have that second trial with the risk of being found guilty and sent back to prison, you were offered what's called an Alford plea. And an Alford plea is something that Jason knows a lot about because he took one. And an Alford plea essentially is when the state can still maintain that they convicted the right person, but because you'd spent X amount of time in prison, you were free to go and you could proclaim your innocence, but the state could still say they had the right man. You chose not to accept that Alfred plea and instead go to court. Why? That was a hard decision.
4: The main thing being, you know, on that second trial when I got convicted, they had offered me 10 years, two 10-year sentences They were going to drop the capital murder. And I said, no, I'm not going to take the deal because I'm innocent. And so I went to trial and I got convicted. So... Every freaking day of my life in prison, I would kick myself in the ass because I would think, you should have took that goddamn 10-year sentence, you know? Now you got a life. So when they come to me with this deal, (laughs) I wanted to take that deal and run with it. I'm not going to lie, you know what I'm saying? Because I'm thinking it's like that joke, you know, where... It's raining and you pray to God, hey, God, help me. And then a boat comes along and then the guy's like, come on, jump on the boat. And you're like, no, God's going to help me. I got faith. And then that boat leaves and then, you know, a helicopter comes. And then you, the helicopter guy's like, hey, man, come on, get get on the helicopter. And you're like, no, man, I'm gonna, I'm not going to do that because God's going to save me. And then he ends up drowning and he tells God, why didn't you save me? And God said, hey, man, I sent you a boat and I sent you a helicopter, you know? So in this position, I felt like, you know, the 10 years was the boat and now I got this helicopter, you know? So I wanted to take it and run with it. And my wife is the one who actually stopped me. She said, no, 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 this is outrageous. My wife mm. is uh, very, very, very into the wrongful conviction community. So she knows all this stuff. I didn't know none of this. Because I was, every time she tried to tell me stuff about that stuff, I was like, I'll oh, tell her, you know what? I don't want to hear that shit because I'm living that damn life. Mm. I don't want to hear that. I'm fighting the damn murder case right now. I don't want to see him making a murder. I'm living that goddamn making a murder, you know? Right. <laughs> so, so then we called Jason Baldwin. And then Jason Baldwin comes down, man, immediately, man. I mean, I love that guy. He comes down from Austin, man. Him and John Harden, man, they go down there. And then we start watching all these videos of all these people who took the offer who didn't take the offer Jason's explaining to me, you know, his frustration and how it's, it's burdensome for him, too, and how he wished he could change it. It was very stressful. <laughs> and at the end of the day, Jason made a comment, man. He said, man, you know what? If you do fight this, man, he says, man, you fight it. You're going to be fighting it for everybody who couldn't fight. And then when he said that, I broke down and cried. I hugged him and I said, you know what, man? I'm I'm doing it, man. I'm doing it for that reason, man. You're right.
3: A decades-long battle between a man accused of capital murder and district attorney Jaime Esparza continues with a third trial. A
1: once convicted murderer who claims he was forced to confess to a crime he didn't commit will go before a jury again.
3: Tomorrow is the stat of Daniel DeLegas' third murder trial.
1: At the trial, someone testified that the police officer who first questioned you yelled at you, hit you, told you you'd face the death penalty if you didn't confess and that you'd be raped in prison. Yeah. Did you know when this new evidence was admitted that this time you'd be okay? No. No, I didn't. Like I said, I mean, by this time, you know, I didn't have no faith
4: in the state, you know, and I didn't have no faith in the law. I didn't have no faith in our justice system. Literally, man, the guy who did it could have came out and said, hey, I did this shit, and I really would have thought, yeah, whatever, you you know, they're not going to do shit because they want... This guy, Jaime Esparza, our DA, you got to understand his mindset. I'm the case that made him blow up. He just was a DA, young, fresh in office, only had a year and thinking they're in office, just took out a dude that had 20 years. And so when my case came and then he beat this and it showed that he was going to be that tough DA, tough on crime, you know, so he wasn't going to backdoor it and say, hey, I screwed up. So it was all a pride thing with him. So I knew at the end of the day, the only way it was going to be resolved was two ways. Either they were going to convict me. Or I was going to
1: get not guilty. There was no going to be no other option. This not guilty verdict, Daniel. I mean, really, I, I've got to, I've got to talk to you about this because this is. I remember when John Hardin told me about this, and I, I looked at it for the first time and was bawling my eyes out. And you know, every time I see it, I can't not. I think it's one of the most emotional things I've ever seen. Have you watched that back? Yeah, I watch it all the time. All the time.
4: It, 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 it always brings me. <laughs> uh, it makes me humble for it every day. You know, and, and it makes me push me for what I, what I what I gotta do. In the District Court of El Paso County, Texas, 409th Judicial District, the State of Texas versus Daniel Viegas, number ninety four zero D 9328 verdict form B. We, the jury, find the defendant Daniel Viegas not guilty of. <laughs> That was a miracle right there. You do not not get what I had right there. You don't get the jurors that I had. I mean, these guys were on their weekends, their hours and hours going over freaking documents. This was really what, what the justice system would do when everybody plays their part and does their part to the fullest, you
1: know? Daniel, how did you celebrate? What happened next? What happened that evening? Where did you go? What did you do? Right after the verdict, I just, uh, I just came home to change real quick and then I went to St. Mark's.
4: We thank God. We had a prayer right there at St. Mark's. There's this big mm-hmm. old Virgin Mary statue that I actually uh, participated in building in that church, and it's humongous. It was one of my first projects. It was the perfect place to to make that prayer. So I, then after that, we went to a restaurant. But I was so mentally exhausted. I mean, <laughs> I, I was like a walking zombie. the 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 actual celebration didn't actually start to the next day because at that time, me and my wife we were just mentally exhausted. We we're just like going through the motions, you know. <laughs> wanting to help and go home.
1: <laughs> I bet, I bet, I can't even imagine. Um, I want to know a bit about what life is for you like now, Daniel. We're a couple of years on, you've got kids. You're going to law school. Tell me, tell me what you're doing. Tell me, tell me about you, what you're doing today. Okay, well, I, I found my calling. I've been always wanting to know what my calling is, you
4: know, and I couldn't figure it out. And then finally it just came to me. I put out on Facebook one day, hey man, I'm looking for another job, another, you know, another way of life, no construction. Anybody have ideas? And I just got an overwhelming response of all these. And then like all these lawyers and stuff were calling me too, like like us uh, messaging me, or whatever. And I was thinking, why the hell what would the hell would I do in the law office? You know? <laughs> so I talked to one of them and I was like, Yeah, man, well, what would I be doing? And so he tells me, man, oh, you know, you'll be helping out with the, you know, with the criminal cases. I felt good about it. And then I went to go do the interview. And then um, after that, I was like, you know what, man, Uh, I feel this job. So I took the job. And then when I took the job, I mean, it's just, I'm just, it was like I was born for this job. Like, I just started, I I can know people. Like, when they come to me and and they're worried about the cases, I've been through that. So I'm like, hey, don't worry about it. You know, this is what we're going to do. remember the judge always going to say this. And I explained it to him because, you know, when they hear from a court, it just sounds so scary, you know? So I just give it to them in modern day term, you know, in human terms, you know, and, and I and I and I tell them, look, I went through the same thing, man. So they know who I am too. So when they see that I've what I've been through and I'm right there comforting them, I mean they just it heals them, you know what I mean? And it makes me feel so good. I feel like my life is being fulfilled. I'm helping people. And at the same time, I'm getting my own therapy. You know, because a lot of times when I tell these people advice, it's like I'm teaching myself.
1: <laughs> well, that, that, that's the other thing I think is the, the trauma of it. People, I think, we're, you know, and I keep mentioning this clip because it's so powerful, but people will look at that and think, oh, that's o- overwhelmingly emotional and positive, And Daniel got justice and everything was perfect afterwards. But the emotional toll, or the trauma of what you went through is not something that just disappears overnight.
4: Oh, that's going to stay with us forever. I mean, you're just never going to disappear. You know, the only thing is that it, during, you know, with time, it gets a lot easier to fight. It gets a lot easier to deal with. As far as it leaving you, it, it never leaves you. I mean, you're always going to have that. And, and it's a good thing, too. You know, it's kind of like Paul with that thorn in the side. I'm not a, you know, big Christian thumper, or go to Sunday church, but I am kind of spiritual. And, and, you know... Paul would always cry about this little pain he had on the side. He will tell God to take it out. And God said, no, that just lets you know you're alive, you know. <laughs> so that pain is kind of like that, you know I mean? It's never going to go away, but it mm. kind of lets me remember where I, where I was at. Where so, you were
1: back then. Yeah, Exactly. So what I kind of do now to beat that. <laughs> is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Better help? We'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counselling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas, and the service is available worldwide. You can log into your account anytime, send a message to your counsellor, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in that uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great Therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if you need to. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit their website, read their testimonials that are posted daily like this one. It's like talking to a good friend. paid you, lets things flow naturally and then boom, all of a sudden all your issues are out. and She helps you come up with strategies to work through them. So visit betterhelp, that's H-E-L-P.com slash masses as in huddled masses and join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states. And there's a special offer for listeners to the Huddled Masses podcast, The Innocents. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash masses
2: wow what an interview he was remarkably cheery considering what has happened to him over the last 20 odd years
1: yeah i think i think it really comes across like how um, grateful Daniel is that um, justice was sort of finally served in his case I mean he seems he's just such a happy guy and, and with all these uh, episodes you know it's, it's frankly astonishing that these people are okay with and, and it's, in some cases it's they want to talk about what happened to them in, in others I guess there's sort of a semi kind of reluctance to have to relive these awful moments again but with all the cases I think that there's a the compulsion is that they want to help other people not only help other people that could be in a similar situation but educate people out there who don't realize that this stuff uh, can and does happen a lot a lot more than we would expect
2: well he's actually doing that for his career now as, as he just said there and once again we're talking about a forced confession from detectives
1: yeah, I mean, that, that to me is... Um, I've heard this so many times now in the course of sort of my career, but it's its still, and I'm sure people listening to this, uh, that, that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that think, why on earth would somebody falsely confess to a murder that they had absolutely nothing to do with? And there's a, a line that sticks with me that Daniel told me. He said, they put you in a state of mind where you are mentally paralysed. I mean, you know, these people are threatened, they're deprived of sleep. Um, And, you know, in the end, it sort of just feels like a way for this to stop for just them to just to sign this piece of paper. And we've heard it time and time again. It can and does happen.
2: And what also happens time and time again is incompetent lawyers defending people like this. Um, So he he mentioned at his second trial, his defense lawyer said, even if my client did this, he didn't mean to actually kill him.
1: Yeah, this is an attorney that is supposed to be defending Daniel on the basis that his client is absolutely innocent and had zero to do with this crime. And then right at the end, he throws this in that. Oh, by the way, that, you know, if you do think he did it and if he did
2: do it, he didn't mean it. You know, this is it's just basically thrown out his entire defense. And... Something else that stayed with me from the interview, I imagine it stayed with most people who've just listened to it, is the violence in in the prison and the fear of rape and the sort of gladiatorial aspect.
1: Yeah. I mean, this, out of the entire series, actually, uh, I think goes deeper into the level of violence in prison that these people, and don't forget, the innocent people have to deal with. Not that anybody should have to deal with, that sort of violence in prison anyway even if you're guilty you know your punishment is to be deprived of your liberty not for then for you to fight for your life in inside an institution that should be protecting you
2: so alex a question you've written about these kind of issues for 15 20 years and this violence in in prison is, is something you you must have heard a lot about why is it just accepted why why do the guards you know they they're warning inmates before they go in you know you have to stick up for yourself physically or you'll be raped why are they saying that rather than trying to stop the rapes happening
1: I think it's a it's very difficult to um change a culture I mean this is something that's sort of like just just um ingrained in prison culture and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of things you need to kind of be aware of you know in prisons in some of the bigger prisons you've got prison gangs that essentially control you know that they're, they're kind of protecting their own and and it's it's it violence is a way of sort of preserving Life really. Just
2: to finish up, our old friend the Orford plea came up again. Daniel was offered it. It's come up a few times now in this series. Um, and once again Jason Baldwin was was one of those who advised Daniel not to take it. He and Jason is actually in the video, the video we spoke about at the start that you heard a bit of. In the interview, when um, Daniel's finally cleared of all charges, you can see Jason Baldwin and his, his big beard that we spoke about when we interviewed him. Um, you just see him sitting behind Daniel.
1: Yeah, with John Hardin actually. So in that really emotional moment, where um, which people can can look at that, you know, they were there in court witnessing it. But Jason did advise Daniel not to take this Alfred plea because it would mean, like we've talked about, that he would be physically free but technically
2: guilty. All right, Al, that's enough for now, I think. I think it is. See you next week and give me some credits. See you next week, Pete. The Innocence is
1: presented by me, Alex Hannaford. The producer and sound engineer was Peter Sale and our theme music is I Shall Be Released by Polly Niles, courtesy of Cherry Red Records. And thanks again to Daniel Villegas for today's interview and also to... Proclaimed justice and John Harding and Jason Baldwin, in particular, who put us in touch with Daniel. The Innocence is a DMT media production for Audio Boom.
0: They say everything can be replaced, they say every distance is not near. So I remember every face Of every man who put me here I see my life come shining